You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds. and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with sound. Higher and higher, filling it with sound. Filling it with sound. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's a story, but that's why I'm here, to tell you stories. Out there somewhere is like, you know, Jack Armstrong, <laughs> Superman. It's all just as real as you are, and I am. <laughs> and the Lord and the angels in heaven, how about them? What do you think, they're the figment of somebody's imagination? Huh. Nobody makes up anything. The time has come to go out of your mind. Are you ready? There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind in living color on WTDR. Wow! I mean, some of the scenes you will witness may appear to border on fantasy. Look, yes. There's the images. Everybody quiet. Just listen. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I said God. It's all remote control. Each one of those images was electronically based. I can't remember when I've been so moved. How do you like that? Why, preposterous. Thank you very much. Let me warn you that I say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individualist. Complete individualist. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. The fault, dear Buddhist, is not in our stars but in ourselves. And good luck. Seatbelts on cause you're in for a howling ride Cause I am the narrator 
voice that guides the blind Following up with your ears, but your mind And allow me to take you back on fourth through time To explain the significance of things you may think insignificant now But won't Further down the line Today on the Magical Mystery Tour, we're going to hear a couple of interviews I did earlier this week. The first with Edward Rosenfeld, a founding editor of Omni Magazine, and the author of The Book of Highs, 255 Ways to Alter Your Consciousness Without Drugs. We'll also hear from James Fadiman, and at the end of the show, we'll hear the second interview I did with Sage Marie Spaeth who's one of five golden ticket winners of last year's Roald Dahl's Imaginormous Challenge. Those of you who read Roald Dahl's wonderful children's book, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, may remember the story of the five golden tickets hidden in the Willy Wonka chocolate bars. Well, last year was the beginning of a new version of that tradition known as Roald Dahl's Imaginormous Challenge, which is an imagination contest which asks kids not to imagine small, but to imagine big or imaginormous. The idea is that every year, Willy Wonka embarks on a search for inventive, imaginative story ideas from smart, imaginative, and creative kids from across the country. And five new golden ticket winners must be found and will be rewarded beyond their wildest imaginations. The deadline to enter this contest is May 1st, so be sure to stick around to find out more about that later on in the show, roughly around 10.10 or 10.15 this morning. And now we're going to hear the interview I did with... Edward Rosenfeld. My guest. My guest is Edward Rosenfeld. He's the founding editor of Omni Magazine, and he's the author of The Book of Highs, 255 Ways to Alter Your Consciousness Without Drugs, newly revised and updated from the original, which was first published 45 years ago, back in 1973. At the time, the U.S. had recently outlawed psychedelics, which my guest was not happy about, as it basically amounted to a violation of our individual rights over our own ability to explore our states of consciousness. So, he got creative and wrote this wonderful collection of drug-free ways to get stoned and alter our consciousness. His new updated version of The Book of Highs also features the artwork of Nate Duval, famous for his Coachella posters, with an introduction by Dr. Andrew Weil. So your new book is, well, actually, it's not new. It's just uh, updated and revised. I call it my new old book. Your new old book, yeah. That's <laughs> it's the book of highs, 255 Ways to Alter Your Consciousness Without Drugs. And I really enjoyed reading the book. I've used many of the methods in this book during my life, and it was a lot of fun to read about them again from your perspective and the way you described them. 
Well, I'm thrilled that you read the book. Uh, no one's, in all the interviews I've done today, no one's told me they read the book. So this is a first. I really appreciate that. And I'm glad you've had some similar experiences. More than 200 of the highs or ways of altering consciousness that I include in the book are really virtually holdovers, though some of them have been updated from the original 1973 publication. Well, it's a fascinating and impressive list of ways to get high or to alter our consciousness without using drugs or other substances. I also really enjoyed the little intro by Andrew Weil where he writes, it's natural to be high and natural to want to be high. In fact, being high might be the most natural condition of all. The euphoria of that experience is almost always accompanied by the conviction that is the way things are supposed to be. Instead of learning to get high, we may need to unlearn not being high by ridding ourselves of the learned habits of worrying, anxiety, fear, and the scattering of our mental energy to get down to that core feeling of joyful transcendence that is the basic state of the human nervous system. That's so great that you read that. You know, when I was talking with the publisher of the current edition, Workman, about doing the new edition, I hadn't looked at Andy's forward from the original edition, which was written in, I think, in 1972, he wrote that forward. And when I read it, I thought, oh, my God, this is perfect. This works word for word in 2018. Isn't that great? Mm. And he points out so many wonderful things in the forward. So we were very pleased that he agreed to let us run it again. And I'm very happy to have it be the forward to the book. Yeah, and it really reflected a lot of the things that I have not only read fairly recently, but have experienced myself and have felt to be true for myself. Because I, I began my journey of exploring my consciousness right around the same time that the original version of this book came out. And I've spent pretty much all my life in that pursuit of exploring consciousness, you know, beginning back in the early days with psychedelic drugs and then meditation and spiritual practice and then continual self-inquiry. Well, as you can see by all the different methods that I've tried to include, I think this is a rich field. I think it's a field that now deserves more attention than ever. And when Workman came to me and said that they wanted to republish it, we all agreed here that it was just the best time with what's going on in the culture now, that this book would really make an impact and really have something important to say to so many people. And uh, I was so pleased because the other thing that Andy points out, Andy, Andrew Weil points out in the foreword, is we're hardwired for these states. We rock ourselves as infants when we're toddlers and we manage to get up on our feet. What do we do? We jump up and down. We spin around. You know, we're exhilarated. This is a natural state of being. And this is why we gravitate to these states, because they are natural and they are part of who we are. They're not all of who we are, but they're a good part of it. And they've been suppressed and ignored for far too long, and that's all changing now. And, and I'm very, very happy about that. Yeah, I actually vividly remember doing all those things when I was a child. And I also enjoyed hearing various people's takes on the stoned ape theory that supports the idea that not only 
is it very natural for us to be doing all those things and seeking to get high and to alter our consciousness, but it's actually part of our evolutionary makeup and part of how we've managed to survive and adapt to catastrophic environmental changes in our early history and early ancestry. Well, there's a theory when you look at the cave paintings from tens of thousands of years ago that these people were eating mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And I have a feeling that that's true. I have a feeling that uh, we are often inspired by these altered states of awareness into our greatest creativity and different ways of coping with the challenges thrown at us from our environment. Yes, and we are currently in one of those times again. And mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, resurfaced back in the 1950s in the public eye. Well, that's when they resurfaced in terms of somebody went to to Oaxaca, Mexico, and with one of the curanderas, one of the the, uh, medicine women, managed to take mushrooms and write about it in Life magazine. Mm -hmm. And then the people who published Life magazine, Claire Booth Luce and her husband Henry Luce, started experimenting with psychedelics. And so they brought a lot of that information originally to the public's attention, which was a, a wonderful thing. But that didn't last too long. Pretty soon they were making laws against it, and that's why I wrote the book. Right. That's exactly where I wanted to go, is what got you interested in writing the book and those changing drug laws at the time. Well, in the early 60s, I had started a psychedelic church called the Natural Church. And along with other people who had started psychedelic churches, we assumed that we would be covered under laws of religious freedom to take a sacrament. It existed in other cultures. Other cultures took psychedelics as sacraments. We didn't see any difference. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, and it took decades before even the American Indians were allowed to use their psychedelic sacrament uh, peyote buttons in their religious ceremonies. And only recently have the ayahuasca churches been allowed to use ayahuasca and another psychedelic in their ceremonies. So I folded the church because it was clear that the religious freedom laws were not going to protect the church. And then I saw all these people who had never taken any of these drugs start to make laws outlawing these drugs. And I thought, this is prohibition redo. This is the prohibition of alcohol just applied to other substances. And I thought, they can make laws about drugs and prohibit them, but they can't outlaw consciousness. And to me, it seemed the best way to show that you can outlaw this is to collect, you know, several hundred different ways to alter consciousness without drugs. So I was very, very lucky because early on, when I was writing the book originally in the late 60s, before it was published, a scholar from the University of California system, Charles Tart, came out with a wonderful scholarly book called Altered States of Consciousness. And he just buttressed all the research that I had been doing. And he had several hundred more altered states that I never included in my book that he had covered in his book. And there was other literature that came out at that time. So I was very fortunate in that I had a lot of supporting research uh, that helped me pull together the original Book of Highs. And I was very pleased that I was able to get it published back in the early 70s, and it did quite well. And I was so surprised when Workman approached me a couple of years ago and said that they thought a new edition was in order. And I agreed. I thought it was uh, exactly the right time. 
especially in the context of what's happening with the marijuana laws now, 30 states with medical marijuana. I don't remember how many with recreational, but more than a half dozen, I think. And we're in the midst of an opioid crisis. So there's trouble. And we need to look at states of consciousness as an area that's ripe for examination and uh, reconfiguration. Now, I read that as a child you had some very unusual consciousness-altering experiences as well, which interests me because when I was a child, I also went through some very strange experiences that I never shared with anybody until fairly recently. Well, my, I like to say my first drug was ether. <laughs> <laughs> because when I was having my tonsils out and I was under ether, I saw a rabbit. And when I woke up, I said, where's the rabbit? Where's the bunny? And the bunny wasn't there. And that was my first hallucination. But more importantly, in terms of my own development and my own experience of altered states, as a four-year-old, I developed scarlet fever, and I ran very, very high fevers. And it changed my normal temperature from 98.6 to 99.2, which persisted into my adolescence. And as a result of that, whenever I had any of my childhood illnesses, I ran extremely high fevers. So I had the sensation of pins and needles. Everything I touched hurt and pierced me. And I also had the sensation of time and space distortions. Things looked bigger than they were or smaller than they were, and time seemed to slow down or speed up. And I think that had to do with having that scarlet fever. So those were my formative experiences as a child that changed my understanding of what the nature of reality was. And then later, as an adult, having a couple of, fortunately, automobile accidents that didn't injure me in any way, I had time distortion during those automobile accidents. Time slowed down, and I could see what was happening in slow-motion detail, even though time did not slow down, and eventually we crashed. So those were the experiences that were very formative to me. So as somebody with a lot of experience in this area, what do you consider to be some of the major beneficial values of getting high or altering our consciousness? Well, I think altered consciousness, altered awareness, non-ordinary states of experience, I think these enlarge us and enrich us. And sometimes... Even the negative experiences enrich us, though it's hard to predict what's going to happen and whether those negative experiences will be valuable or not. But I think getting out of our normal consciousness shows us more of the depth of what we are as human beings and how rich our life could actually be. I think that there's more than what we call normal everyday reality, and I think these altered states whether drug-induced or not drug-induced, are channels into that expanded awareness. And that's why I think they're so important. And I also think they may have a great deal to do with creativity and with imagination. And I think imagination is a key to many of these altered states. So as we were talking about before with the, the cave paintings from tens of thousands of years ago, possibly being the result of people taking mushrooms, I think people having altered states oftentimes have enhanced powers of creativity and imagination. 
and also connecting with other possible levels of experience or quote-unquote reality. That's true. Uh, I've had very few non-ordinary states in normal waking life. And I can tell you a quick story if you'd like. Please. I was one of the founding editors of a magazine in the late 70s called Omni, which was about science and science fiction. And at that time, there was an Israeli magician named Uri Geller, mm-hmm. who was very much the rage. He was on the Johnny Carson show. He bent spoons with his mind, and he did all these other things. And there was also a man who wrote a column for Omni magazine, or helped write a column, called The Amazing Randy. And he was famous for debunking everything that Uri Geller did. So along with editors of two other magazines that were also owned by the owner of Omni, who was Bob Guccione from Penthouse, the three editors, these two women, and I went to Uri Geller's apartment when he was living in New York, and he tried to do all these things for us, and nothing was working. And then finally, he said, oh, I'll bend some spoons. And one of the women pulled out the key to the ladies' room, and I knew the men's room key, and I knew that key couldn't be bent. And as he stroked her key in front of all of us, it bent upward under his finger. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. I couldn't explain it. I didn't know anything about it. So I bring the key back to the Omni office, and the amazing Randy happened to be there that day. So I show him the key, and I give him my men's room key, and I say, okay, Randy, do it. Show me that Uri Geller can't do it. And you don't have to make it bend up. You can make it bend down. And I'll say that he's a fraud. And Randy broke the key to my apartment and handed me back my keychain. I was very upset. (laughs) But there are non-ordinary states of reality. I have no doubt about that. I just haven't had too many experiences like the one I just told you. Uh Uh-huh. A lot of people condemn getting high or altering consciousness as either a hedonistic or just an irresponsible avoidance of the responsibilities of quote-unquote real life, whether it's through drugs or even things like meditation or therapy or any outside-of-the-box approach. How would you respond to that? Well, I think those people are extremely judgmental. I think it's a holdover of the Protestant ethic that we have to work and suffer for everything that comes to us. And that's not true. We can have ecstatic experiences, and they're not bad. And it's not that we have to earn them. They're part of our everyday life if we're willing to embrace them. And the fact that we have them as children is a, you know, a perfect example of that. So I think these people who claim that these hedonistic experiences are something bad. They can be. I'm sure some people are abusive in those kinds of circumstances. However, I think for most people that's not the case. And I think it's very judgmental. And I think these are the kinds of people who made the laws against the drugs that I was reacting to in the late 60s. I think they thought that this was just pure hedonism and there was nothing that was good about it and they had to ban it and outlaw it. It was reprehensible and disgusting. Could you talk about set and setting or our expectations or intentions and the space or environment that we enter into with these kind of practices? Well, I think you brought up a very crucial point, which is what is it that we're looking to experience and how does that color 
the subsequent experience that we have. You know, Larry Alpert and Metzner made set and setting famous in the 1960s in terms of taking psychedelics because what they found was when they gave people psychedelics and they expected to have a bad trip, a lot of times they had a bad trip. And I think if you approach many of the methods that I talk about for altering consciousness in the book, if you approach it with an open mind and a sense of exploration and the chance for enhanced experience, you have, a, you have a pretty good chance that that may happen. But if you think to yourself, oh, I'm going to be mentally injured if I do this, then I think you're asking for trouble. And I think this is true in other aspects of life having nothing to do with altered consciousness. I think set and setting are extremely important. And if you're not in a supportive setting, especially if you're trying to alter your consciousness, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. But other people, different strokes for different folks, other people have different experiences. I would take psychedelic drugs and ride the New York City subway system. Other people couldn't do that. But that was the way I was built. It wasn't the way everybody was built. And I gloried in the subway. It was a panoply of the human condition to me. And it was life-changing to ride the subway during a psychedelic experience. Other people, some who took subway rides with me, said they would never do that again, no matter what. So uh, we really have to account for our differences, and I think you've brought up an extremely important point about what our expectations are going into virtually any kind of experience, especially one out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. And that's also very true going into therapy, which is a whole section in the book describing many, many different therapies. And because I had such a screwed up childhood, I have done several different types of therapies in my life. And I think the expectation and intention that we go into therapy is very important because there are lots of people who think that therapy is a load of crap. And I would suspect that people who go into it with that approach, sort of like the amazing Randy, are going into it just to prove their own prior belief system. Nobody's going to cure me. Right. Nobody's, right? Exactly. Especially not some quack therapist. Exactly. Exactly. But what I'd like to do is just to, to uh, talk a little bit about the organization of the book since you brought that up. The, the book is divided into three sections. The first section is things you can do by yourself. Alterations of breathing, jumping up and down, spinning around. Concentration is the very first entry in that section, the first entry in the book. The second section is things that require help from others. And in that section, I include a lot of spiritual and religious disciplines, as well as a lot of psychiatric and psychotherapeutic approaches. And the third section of the book is devoted to devices and machines and is subdivided into things that require electricity and things that don't require electricity. Now, to get back to what you were talking about, about psychotherapies, many people have that attitude. I'm incurable. No one can help me. And I'll be damned if this person's going to help me. How would they know what's going on inside of me? And again, here we deal with expectations and set and setting. That's very, very true. And it's the way people interfere with themselves a great deal. One of the guys who wrote a lot about psychedelics and was also uh, responsible for introducing a lot of Asian religious and mystical practices into America was Alan Watts. 
and the title of his autobiography was a triple entendre. It was called In My Own Way. And what you're talking about with the therapies is people who get in their own way. Mm -hmm. And another critical aspect of altering consciousness is that it helps us to change our perspective of things and opens up whole new realms of possibilities. That's absolutely true, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, is that people perhaps could be more open about these alternative experiences and other ways of experiencing our daily consciousness. People do it through alcohol, through coffee. More and more people don't do it through tobacco anymore. But, you know, all of these substances, aside from the psychedelics, you know, these are drugs, and we have these experiences with drugs in our daily life. But most people are not open to new experiences. And I hoped that, and still hope that even the new edition of my book will encourage more people to take a more open attitude and a, a more exploratory approach to what their experience of consciousness is. At the end of Andrew Weil's introduction, he wrote, we're caught up in a fever of experimentation with methods of changing consciousness, much of it generated by the young. There will be much wasted effort and some casualties, but out of it all will come a generation that will know how to use its consciousness more and more fully, a generation that can build a truly high society. Where do you see our society in relation to that optimistic perspective? Well, for when it was written in the early 1970s, that was a very optimistic perception, and I was pleased that Andy wrote that. I think we've seen in terms of just what we call in technology installed base, we've got installed base around drugs and around altered states that has to do with law enforcement, legal system, judicial system, and incarceration system. And these are all systems augured against us. They all have people who are dedicated to perpetuating them. And I think this is what gets in the way of Andy's optimism. And I'm not sure, I'd, I'm bringing this up, but I don't have any easy answers. And I don't think the people who sell equipment to let police break down the doors of people's homes in order to see whether they have drugs inside are going to stop producing that equipment. And I don't see the lawyers and judges who are enforcing these draconian and stupid laws against the least favored members of our culture and society. I don't see them changing. And God knows the prison system is set in stone. It's not going to change. I mean, it's really going to take a lot. It's really going to take a great deal of change and transformation before we can get rid of these pernicious built-in systems that augur against us and against our culture progressing in ways that are entirely possible but are held back by just these social and cultural structures which are so ossified and so inhibiting. I'm sorry, I'm a little worked up about all that. So. No, I, I feel the same way. So <laughs> no need to apologize, at least not to me. So maybe, get, <laughs> maybe getting back into the topics in your book, what are some of your favorite ways of altering your consciousness? Well, I mentioned concentration, which is the first entry. 
And I like to focus on things, and I like to get into the flow. And many years ago, when I was a practitioner of Zen Buddhism, we sat zazen. We sat on the floor with our legs crossed. But there was another component to our meditative practice, which was called kirin, and that was when we walked in meditation. And even though I'm not a practicing Zen Buddhist now, I walk every day that I can, and I usually walk for at least an hour a day. And walking to me is one of my very, very favorite highs. I just think it's so wonderful. Walking frees me. Walking lets me be focused and full-minded or empty-minded as I choose. And being in motion while I'm doing that is, I think, what, what really supports my experience, that I'm in movement and motion. So walking is, is one of my very, very favorites. The second has to do in part with my wife. My wife is a couples and sex therapist. And one of the things we talk about a lot is loving and how people fall in love and how people stay and be in love. And I just want to bring up falling in love, that initial, incredible, life-changing, consciousness-altering experience that those who are able to have it benefit from greatly. And what happens is even the thought of our beloved is mind-altering. Even the notion that we will soon see and be in the presence of our beloved changes our consciousness. Being on the phone with our beloved is extraordinary and different than a normal phone call. And actually being in the presence, gazing into the eyes of our beloved, touching them, I mean, this is all transcendent and transformative. And many, many people have this experience. So when people say to me, oh, I've never had an altered state of consciousness, falling in love is the easiest one to point to and say, yes, you have. If you've ever fallen in love, you've had your body changed, your brain, electricity, and chemistry totally transformed. And I just think it's one of the great examples of altered consciousness. And the last one is an esoteric one. There's a great Irish novelist named James Joyce, and he wrote a book called Finnegan's Wake. And many people find that book totally inscrutable. They open it up and they say, this is gibberish. I can't read this. And I was very fortunate because I loved James Joyce. I had read other books that he had written. And when I got to Finnegan's Wake, I was flummoxed. So I read a lot of scholarly books about Finnegan's Wake. and how I read a book called The Skeleton Key to Finnegan's Wake. And I discovered on my own, my own key to Finnegan's Wake that made the work come alive for me. And that was reading it out loud and trying to read it in an Irish brogue as if I were like James Joyce. And suddenly, all of the limericks, all of the puns, all of the, the convolutions and explorations of advancing language came to life for me. And I realized he had written one of the most important books ever written, and that it was transformative. And it altered my consciousness reading it that way, reading it aloud. And it's just, it's been one of the great discoveries of my life and made something that was impenetrable totally enjoyable for me. So those are three of my very favorites. That last one's fascinating because I really enjoyed reading that in the book and it made me want to read it, which I haven't, but I've known people who have done that. They, they speak it out loud, little bits and pieces of it, which got me hooked on doing the same thing and actually creating my own in that spirit. 
And, and don't try and do the whole book. You know, choose a paragraph. Exactly. And do a paragraph. Yeah. And just see how it sounds. Mm -hmm. it, it'll come alive to you, I promise you. The whole book is great. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Your book is full of wonderful little juicy practices. And thank you so much for your time. If I could just direct people to bookofhighs, all one word, dot com, B-O-O-K-O-F, H-I-G-H-S dot com. There's a lot of stuff there in addition to the table of contents of the book. It's been wonderful to talk to you, Tony. It's been a real pleasure. Well, thank you so much, Edward. I've enjoyed this very much, and I enjoyed the book very much. That's great. Thank you. Take care now. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was Edward Rosenfeld. He's the author of The Book of Highs, 255 Ways to Alter Your Consciousness Without Drugs, newly revised and updated from the original, which was first published 45 years ago in 1973. At the time, the U.S. had recently outlawed psychedelics, which my guest was not happy about, as it basically amounted to a violation of our individual rights over our own states of consciousness and the ability to explore our own states of consciousness. So he got creative and wrote this wonderful collection of drug-free ways to get high, to get stoned, and to alter our consciousness. This new updated version of the Book of Highs also features the artwork of Nate Duval, famous for his Coachella posters. It also begins with a wonderful introduction by Dr. Andrew Weil. We're going to hear a couple of shorter interviews with James Fadiman, continuing on this theme of going beyond our usual limited thinking and expectations and experience. One way we can transform our self-concept is rather than saying, I am bad at math or I am a, a bad parent, is to say, I used to be. Well, as soon as you say, I used to be, you're telling the truth. You had mm -hmm. evidence that you used to be this and that. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't mean that you have to be in the future. You're not locked into it. It doesn't squeeze down your future to be exactly like your past. Mm -hmm. Well, to what extent are we the, the product of our past experiences? How can we just break away from the past? Well, we can't break away from the past, but we can kind of slowly pull ourselves away <laughs> from the past uh -huh. into the future if we wish to. Uh -huh. uh, 
Example, if you go to a foreign country, you are going to start by speaking English because you have an enormous past history of speaking English effectively and correctly mm -hmm. and in all situations. And people speak English back to me. So you're rewarded for it. Yeah. Well, when you do that in Paris, people look at you hard. They sure do. They would rather you'd speak French. Mm -hmm. And you therefore will begin to develop some new behaviors. And after a while, when someone walks up to you, you will speak in French. A little bit. A little bit, yeah. and then a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And you haven't lost your English. You haven't given up your past. You haven't gone back to some, you know, you haven't become a new human being. When you visit the United mm -hmm. States, you will find your ability to speak mm -hmm. English is unimpaired. Now, that's a tough one. I kind of understand what you're saying, but you hit me at a, at a sore point, because I kind of don't believe I could learn French. Well, because you used to not speak French. Right. All my life I used to not speak French. Right, from when you were very small. <laughs> right. Uh, did you speak anything when you were born? No. We uh, babbled. You I babbled. babbled and right. Not too well at that, perhaps. <laughs> uh -huh. But you learned English. Yeah. Now, are you less capable of learning than when you were two years old? I, I suspect I am, yeah. I don't, uh, languages have been hard for me, so maybe it's a good example to talk okay. about. Right, yeah. so when you were two years old, you were able to learn a language. I was able to learn English very nicely. Now, of course, nicely. you were taught in a much more healthy and sane environment than you were in school, because mm -hmm. you had people who mm -hmm. loved you, and you had lots of practice, and they didn't push you beyond whatever you could do in a given day, and you had lots of rewards. It, that's true. Uh -huh. Well, it turns out that if you try teaching a language that way mm -hmm. to adults, with running around and playing and singing and uh, uh, play acting mm -hmm. and lots of things with food. People learn mm -hmm. a language in one-fifth, one-sixth, one-eighth the time mm -hmm. that our conventional educational system says it takes. You know, now that you mention it, it's true. It's called accelerated learning or the Lazanoff method, uh, super learning. Uh, in fact, I even did attend a seminar and learned how to speak uh, quite a bit of Spanish in a few hours that way. Uh -huh. But I forgot. <laughs> because you mm -hmm. had a belief system that says, since I'm not good at languages, yeah. even though I learned Spanish, a lot of it in a few hours, that didn't count. Yeah. Right. So it's what interests me is what does count. Mm -hmm. So my own attitude towards what I'm capable of doing is probably the biggest limitation that I or any of our viewers have. It looks like it. Mm -hmm. Now, yes, there are social limitations, yes, there are economic limitations, mm -hmm. yes, there are physical limitations, but if we look at a hundred disadvantaged people and name your disadvantages mm -hmm. and come back 20 years later, some of them have done magnificently. Mm -hmm. What happened? Why did those few do differently? Well, when we ask them, they say, well, my attitude was different than the other people. Other people around them will say it was luck. But that's the people who are still there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, uh, mm -hmm. I have a definition of luck. It's cute, but it's useful to me. Mm -hmm. It's laboring under correct knowledge, uh -huh. which is why some people have more of it. Oh. And why do some people tend to make better decisions much of the time? Well. If you ask them, they say, I don't know, I just pay attention and do the best I can. But it's the paying attention that turns out to be critical. And that gets back to their attitude about themselves. Mm -hmm. Well, if we have a, an attitude about ourselves that limits us, you might call that incorrect knowledge. Right. Uh, Such as, uh, I used to be bad at math is correct knowledge. I don't know what will happen in the future is correct knowledge. I am bad at math and don't you try and teach me anything. Uh, that's incorrect knowledge. Mm -hmm. Or I am a bad spouse, or I am not a good parent. Or... 
any or, any attitude in any area of life. Would, or I'm an overweight person, which is the polite. I term. can never lose weight. Right. I can't control my whatever it is. Drinking, that you can't smoking, control. cocaine. Right. All of all of these attitudes affect virtually every behavior. Well, it looks like if we're playing generations, there was the me generation and the kind of narcissistic generation, the mm -hmm. potential generation. Someone has suggested that our generation is the anonymous generation because there are so many groups of alcoholics mm -hmm. anonymous, overeaters mm -hmm. anonymous, narcotics anonymous, yeah. and when you visit them, they're full of people with transformed attitudes. They're people who used to have the attitude of addiction and now they have the attitude of power, pride, self-control, and remarkable development. I mean, they are probably the most impressive people that I've been meeting, uh, other than a few people perhaps in the computer world. Uh -huh. Well, how do we all become so ignorant about our potential that we allow ourselves to, to develop these attitudes? And, and many people, uh, myself included, I'm sure, they become very deeply ingrained. I mean, there's some things I would refuse to believe I could do. Well, if you go to a kindergarten and you say to any kindergarten teacher, what percentage of the kids in this class can learn to play a musical instrument? The answer from any kindergarten teacher is 100%. Now, if you go to a sixth grade class and you say to, to a teacher, what percentage of the children can learn to play a musical instrument? The answer is about 40%. What's happened? Well, we're not sure what's happened but it looks like a combination of parents mm -hmm. and the school system have snuffed out not the ability but the willingness to have the ability mm -hmm. because if you turn it around and get one of those kids who quote I can't play no musical instrument I got no talent I can't practice I hate to practice and I don't know which and I have and I'm tone deaf the ultimate safety from learning any music right. if you take that child or that adult and simply get them to let go of the attitudes. They can learn to play a musical instrument, not as quickly as a kindergartner, mm -hmm. but almost. And so it's that kind of letting go and taking up a new attitude that I find very exciting. Mm -hmm. in, in other words, what you're saying is it doesn't matter how we got the attitude. No matter what happened to us, uh, our parents may have beat it into us. For example, if, if parents didn't like us, it's possible to change the attitude anyhow. Well. If it's possible to learn a new language by living somewhere else, if it's possible to learn to drive a stick shift if you've only driven an automatic, mm -hmm. if it's possible to, to learn a computer, mm -hmm. clearly we're capable of learning new things. Right. And therefore, if we look back at the things we've decided we can't learn, that's just an attitude. But I wonder if you're not making it, it, it sounds a little too easy to me yet, Jim. For example, learning a skill seems to be something that most people can do, but sometimes changing your attitudes is different because of the emotional attachment. It's not just simple learning. You have to let go of something that you may have a very strong emotion. Right, which is if you want to be that way. Mm. See, one of the problems... Or if you're afraid to be different. Or if you would disappoint your parents by being better. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that sounds paradoxical, but if you're brought up in a family with a couple of kids, in most families, one of the kids is nicer, and everyone in the family knows who that is. One of the kids is smarter. Everyone knows who that mm -hmm. is. And after a while, if you're the not nice one or the nice one, you don't get out of line. You don't disappoint your parents by being mm -hmm. different than they expect Conforming you to Conforming to a, an expectation or a role that you've grown into. And once you've grown into it, uh, take kids with reading. 
children don't start out as bad readers because they start out as non-readers, all children. <laughs> and then they get into school and some of them decide, I'm not a good reader for various reasons, parenting, education, who knows. But then they can maintain it, usually with the school system support. They then are moved into that special group. Yeah. You know, which reading group are you in? I'm in the turtles. What are the turtles? That's the dumb kids. We're the bad readers. And then the child begins to think of themselves as a bad reader, as someone who is not as bright. Mm -hmm. And each year it's reinforced and redeveloped. Through labeling. Through labeling and mm -hmm. through practice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that if you take an adult who says, I'm illiterate, the first thing you have to do in a literacy class is convince them that they are now going to stop being illiterate. That's why they came to the class. Otherwise, they will maintain illiteracy through all the reading training mm -hmm. and go out and saying, well, I went to a literacy class and I'm still illiterate, which is they've mm -hmm. hung on to the attitude. So well, unless you change the attitude first, mm -hmm. a lot of what we call learning experiences are blown. That was James Fadiman, and we're going to hear more from James Fadiman. With me is Dr. James Fadiman, and tonight we're speaking about the psychedelic experience. You wrote a book called... The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Safe, Therapeutic, and Sacred Journeys. And what motivated you to write that book? Well, I thought, do I know anything that other people don't know? And I realized that I had actually done psychedelic research in pretty much all four major areas, and that no one else, who's still around at least, had ever done that. And so I actually knew things that people needed to know if they're going to use these materials legally or not, they should do it safely. And there's also ways of using them that most people really are unaware of. And so that's how the book came out. You were researching in the 60s when they made it illegal. Yeah. LSD was legal. And when I was a graduate student at Stanford, I was also working with a group in Menlo Park called the International Foundation for Advanced Study, IFAS. <laughs> not to be confused with the one in uh, Harvard, which was known as if if <laughs> And we had permission from the government to work with people therapeutically. And we were using high doses for people that understand about LSD. That was like 400 micrograms. And we were giving them what about 80% of them said was the most valuable experience of their life. And so that's what we were allowed to do. And then we moved to working with scientists on scientific problem solving, which is a whole other area. And during those studies, the government shut us down and every other research project in the country. And at that point, we had four senior scientists in our little living room set up, lying down with headphones, and we were about to get them up and give them the chance to work on their problems they'd brought in that had been obsessing them for months. Here was this letter, here were the scientists. And I said to the group, I was kind of the youngest member, I said, I think we got this letter tomorrow. <laughs> and 
we got it the next day and worked with those four guys and that's when that research ended. What percentage of those people had breakthroughs in their thinking? It was like 88%. Out of that group, we had patents, we had publications, we had products. And the reason we picked hard scientific problems is then we didn't have to evaluate it, we didn't have to do psychological tests, we didn't have to have judges. We simply said to the people, was this valuable? And one of the ways we knew it was valuable is very often we'd have one member of a working team, say at Hewlett Packard or at Varian or at Stanford Research Institute, and the next week we'd get calls and said, we're working with this guy, we'd like to be subjects in the research as well, because he came back with real improvements in what we're doing. And that was incredibly exciting to be giving people the chance to use the analytic part of their minds, not the psychotherapeutic and the spiritual, which we'd also worked with, but just the part that makes a difference in the material world by inventing things. And that was terrific. And not all that well known, but there are two Nobel Prize scientists who have acknowledged LSD use as pivotal for what they got their Nobel Prizes for. So. This material was a lot more useful than the government has ever admitted. Francis Crick had visualized a single helix, kind of all by himself, but according to Francis, with 100 micrograms of LSD or something like that, a double helix, wow. And the other is Gary Mullis, Kerry Mullis, who basically said, I didn't use LSD when I made the discovery for which I got the Nobel Prize. But by that time, I had learned by my use of LSD how to get inside molecules and look around. So I suspect there's some other Nobel Prize winners out there who are not talking. Francis Crick didn't want it known until after his death. Right. But the group that he was with in England, they were among, as graduate students will do, they were using LSD. Recreationally, primarily, but you can't have really, really smart guys using something like this without their saying, I wonder how this works on the smart part of my mind. Dr. Fadman, what do you think it is about the psychedelic experience that opens up these avenues of exploration? Well, for the past 40 years, I have a very correct answer, which is I'm the faintest idea. But this year, there's a study in England where they took psilocybin and they basically injected it into people. And when you use it that way, it has about a 15-minute, very intense high. And during that 15 minutes, they were monitoring cerebral blood flow, meaning what parts of the brain are getting nourished, what parts of the brain are getting less nourished. And we always thought that what happened is the parts dealing with sensory awareness and sensuality and things like that would get this explosion of extra energy. Turns out we were totally wrong. What happens is the parts of the brain that are most interested in personal identity and limitations get undernourished. So the natural amount of information that's always ricocheting around the brain is actually experienced. And what's fascinating is people experience this blissfully, even though their personality at that point is at a minimum. So it reduces the ego. It seems to get the ego out of the way, just like every spiritual system we've ever heard of says is necessary. And then the boundaries just go away. And well, when the boundaries go away, then the question is how far out do you extend? And right. the answer is that you are clearly connected to everything. Obvious intellectually, even though you don't think that way, but if you can feel and sense that, that you're actually part of this huge matrix, then you have different capacities to think and feel within that larger matrix. 
And when you look at anything, you can see that it is actually obviously alive. I mean, we, again, we know intellectually that my hand is 99.99% empty space. But the air is a little more empty space, so I can put this through this and it works pretty well. But if I'm seeing them all as energy, that's a very different sensation. It's a very different realization. And once you have those realizations, you retain the knowledge of the realization. Just as when you've been to, say, Niagara Falls, it's really big, it's really loud, it's really wet, it's really exciting. And then when you're back in Duluth or Argentina, someone says Niagara Falls, and you have a different feeling because you have experience of what that means. Rather than it's a postcard with this kind of lot of water in the, in the postcard. Are there ways that you can stabilize the experience and integrate it into your everyday life? Well, it's harder to do when the substances are illegal. The integration is necessary because these are profound moments for people. And when I said earlier that the people we worked with, literally 80% of them said this was the single most important experience of their life. Well, we didn't just give it to them in the morning and wish them well at 5 o'clock. They had had some weeks of preparation and they had some weeks of integration. Because to integrate that into your life is not easy, especially when you're in a culture that doesn't quite know what you're talking about. And so one of the things people learned to do was not to share with people who tried to belittle their experience. We also advised them not to make any life changes for a few weeks. And we did that because some guy left us on a Friday and came back married on a Monday. And we congratulated him and he said, well, I met her Friday night. And so we asked people just not to change their jobs and not to change their relationships for about six weeks while integration happened. And, and that turned out to be very good advice. And now that psychedelics are back being researched, what I'm finding is, is the culture can tolerate people like me talking about what's the best way to use a substance which, for fairly bizarre political reasons, is illegal. And I should mention, because I'm not really interested in people taking these substances, but that's a little bit like some sex educator saying, well, I'm not interested in people having sex. The sex educator knows that people are going to have sex. The problem is, are they going to do it correctly? And since the government made psychedelics illegal, in the United States alone, 23 million people have taken LSD since it was illegal, since it, quote, had no possible uses, and since it was unobtainable. And what's more interesting to me is four to 600,000 people will take it for the first time this year. And I'd like those people to do it safely and well. So that's part of my kind of missionary zeal. So a lot of those people will be taking it as a party drug, they'll be drinking at the same time. Um, what should they be doing? Well, what they should be doing is not drinking at the same time for openers. And if they're going to use it is probably to, to learn a little bit. And it turns out what we discovered in the 60s was pretty much what the indigenous people have evolved over several thousand years, which is you take it with a guide, with someone who knows so much more than you do. So if you do get frightened, because this is new territory, there's somebody there that says, hey, that's all right, or take a deep breath, or it's really fine what you're doing. Other people have done this. It's only a drug, and don't worry. And all those things change enormously people's experience. It's the difference between getting an injection in a physician's office with your arm relaxed and a nurse kind of looking nice at you, and somebody running up on the street with a syringe and stecking you. Both are injection into the arm of something but whoa the difference of being with people who know what they're doing is huge so and speaking of uh 
people injecting things in you. This is WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, the Magical Mystery Tour. We're listening to an interview with Dr. James Fadiman. That's setting. Set, which is what do you intend to get out of it? And if it's recreational, hopefully you're taking a low enough dose so you won't get in trouble. But if you're seriously looking at, at understanding yourself more, which is a higher dose, or understanding the spiritual dimensions of the universe, which is a higher dose, then you probably would do much better with somebody who knows what they're doing. We have something called a designated driver. That's somebody who says, I actually can get us home. Don't worry. And being a designated driver is a very honorable profession, and it's wonderful. Should you start with a low dose if you're new to it? Well, I don't know. But it really, again, depends on more of what your intention is and what your situation is. Because set, word you use, and I use it all the time, is kind of mental attitude. Setting is what's the ambiance, what's the atmosphere, what's the situation? Are you hanging on to someone on the back of a motorcycle? Not a good idea. Are you um, in a national park near a waterfall? Better. Are you with people, several of whom really know their way around, and perhaps someone has given you music to listen to and is there just to be for you? Better yet. So the question of dose is another question, and obviously taking more both increases the possibilities, but it also increases the risk. And above a certain amount, two things are wrong. One is you won't remember anything, meaning you won't bring anything back. And two is you're wasting a lot of really good material. You know, if I like ice cream, why wouldn't two gallons be even better than three scoops? And the answer is because on three scoops, you don't get sick. And on two gallons, you think, I'm never going to have ice cream again. The other thing I want out of people's vocabulary is called a bad trip. And what I've found, and I've been interviewing now hundreds of students, because students are the people who both know the most and have taken unbelievably amounts of interesting drugs these days, is I say, was it a challenging trip? And the answer is, oh, yeah. Meaning it had very difficult portions, and it wasn't pleasant, and it may have made you feel terrible for a while after, but as you began to integrate it, you began to see that there was something important for you there. So my feeling is always, if you're going to use these things, go for the safest, most beneficial, kindest, most expansive experience. But if things are hard, then deal with that as well as you can. And the best people actually at Burning Man. Burning Man has all kinds of wonderfully trained people because all kinds of bizarre things happen at Burning Man. But what they say is we never bring anyone down. We bring them through. And I've seen again and again people in terribly terrified places totally not knowing what happened to them. Maybe their date slipped it to them. Maybe they took five times as much as they should have. And they end up in this little sanctuary with these wonderful people. And within a few hours, they say, oh... Oh, it's okay. Oh, I can see what happened. Oh, I'm really learning from this. Thank you so much. So even very, very difficult trips or journeys can be turned around, again, with a skilled guide. It seems that if you're able to meet the experience, it's better. If you try to run from it, it's going to be hard. Well, as the way you're supposed to deal with, you know, when you meet the bear or the tiger or the lion or the wolf, the one thing you should go through your mind is don't look like prey. In a sense, when you have a difficult internal situation, as you do in your life, you know, when you're in an argument with someone you love and you're just about to say something really hurtful 
And that inner voice says, how about a little self-control? You're furious right now, but you really love this person. Do you really want this forever in your system? And so in a little bit, when you're having a difficult experience with a psychedelic, as you do in a difficult experience in life, if you can pull yourself back, you can say, okay, it's a difficult experience. I'll do the best I can. And that really helps. Dr. Fadiman, could psychedelics have use for people who have had traumatic experiences, uh, returning veterans, things like that? Well, there's psychedelics, and there's also ecstasy. And ecstasy is like a kind of psychedelic, which is you don't lose track of your personality. You don't lose track of your identity. But what you do have is the ability to access the most disturbing feelings you've ever had and not be disturbed by reviewing them. And the research is impeccable, where you've taken people with post-traumatic stress disorder, meaning you can't function, you have nightmares, when somebody pops a bottle top, you dive under the sofa. You're basically, in a sense, prevented from having your life, and a lot of the returning soldiers who've committed suicide have it. Well, it turns out with MDMA, and what's called correctly MDMA-assisted therapy, which is it's in a therapy program, you have a couple of these experiences, in the first group, 80% of them basically lost so many of their symptoms, they no longer could have been admitted to the study. And a number of them simply returned to full-time work. So that's now being done again, but it's being done with veterans. And think about it. There are approximately 700,000 veterans returning from these last few wars with post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, the conventional methods of treating them don't help a lot of those people. Some yes, but many not. MDMA-assisted therapy seems to be incredibly useful. And I was just reading today about a man who's a stuntman for his occupation, but he came down with Parkinson's. Well, Parkinson's and stuntmen just don't go together. And he was acutely aware of the loss of physical agility. Well, it turns out when he took MDMA, and he did this in a scientific laboratory, that for the number of hours the drug was working, he had a large return of his capacity. He certainly wasn't as good as he'd ever been, but he could do like somersaults and things. And then as the drug wore off, he still had Parkinson's. It was not a cure. And that we're just exploring. So that's a really new one. And again, why should people with Parkinson's with post-traumatic stress disorder be denied a medication which seems to help them. So would you agree that people need to speak up and make some noise for their rights? Go deeper than rights, which is what are the basic freedoms? And I don't think there's an argument. I've been on some wonderful right-wing programs and I start with what are basic freedoms and I say should you be allowed to get closer to divinity? Okay. All the right-wing shows say, well, yeah, that's, that's cool. <laughs> and I say, and should you be allowed to understand the natural world? Should you be allowed to do science? Should you be allowed to discover and create? Yeah. And should you be allowed to explore yourself and know your own soul? Sure. And I say, well, turns out psychedelics are an incredibly useful tool in those three areas. They allow you to get closer to divinity. They allow you to understand yourself and to actually alleviate a lot of what we would call kind of garden neuroses. And they allow you, particularly as we did with Crick and problem solving, to really explore the natural world with an advanced tool. So in some sense, when people say, you shouldn't use these because the government put them on a schedule, 
I guess my answer is if they put a microscope on the schedule, would you assume that it had suddenly turned into a bad instrument? So yeah, those who make no effort to retain their rights historically don't keep them too long. Is there an organized movement like the legalized marijuana movement? No, there's actually an incredibly disorganized movement. Yeah. When I say 23 million people, what's lovely is when you write a book about psychedelics, when you write any book, you kind of go around and total strangers kind of get book in the face. And what I do, since I do that to people, <laughs> the number of people who respond and say, hey man, or I did that in college. I mean, you, you sit next to someone on a plane who you know must be a hedge fund manager who is screwing some small country by selling them bonds that are worthless. And you put your little book up and he looks at you like you are scum. And then there's this funny thing that happens, which is this little kind of, oh. And he says, you know, in college once, I took, I think it was psilocybin, it was mushrooms. And I remember I was running down the street about four in the morning, I was naked, and I was yelling, what are you all doing up there hiding in your clothes? <laughs> and then you kind of watch it, you know, kind of the shape shift again. And there's the guy looking at you and you, you don't say anything. You just say, would you like a copy of this book? To which very often the answer is, you're, you're giving it to me? <laughs> I said, for you, I'm giving it to you. So you're trying to put it out there? It's a meme? It's a good meme. Uh, you know, hopefully the culture will pick it up, right? Well, it's a return to a lot of the memes that the 60s attempted. But the 60s, which were predominantly, after all, the beginning of the ecology movement, the beginning of women's liberation, civil rights, etc., but was done by very young people without power. And what's true now is that those young people who had those experiences, they're the judges. They're the DAs. They're the, the people in Drug Enforcement Administration. They're the cops. So that the young people now who are taking charge are getting a lot more support than our generation did. And that is an extremely positive part of what we're doing. One thing that had occurred to me to mention was the distinction between a psychotropic, naturally occurring plants like the mushrooms, or say uh, peyote cactus versus LSD, which is made in a laboratory. Is there a useful distinction between them? Well, not much. I remember one of the health food books saying that the molecule of vitamin C, when it gets into your cell, doesn't know whether it was made in a laboratory or an orange. And so the question is, what does the molecule do? And the answer is synthetics and plants have much of the same effects. The difference is the plant has all kinds of other fascinating things that we haven't explored. Peyote, for example, has mescaline. We know about that. But it has 43 other alkaloids. And nature put them there for some purpose. And we're just beginning to be able to handle that complicated kind of biological and, and pharmacological question. Could it be that uh, um, a few alkaloids here and there, or tertiary alkaloids, could change the experience and are, in fact, important? Well, probably yes. And yeah. the answer is, again, if you, given that peyote has no enemies, nothing ever attacks it because it's the most horrible-tasting thing in the world, and it's very small, and it's very ugly, and it's a one inch above the ground, why does it have 43 alkaloids? Several of which seem to lock into receptors in the human brain. So if you ask the shamans, they say, well, the, some of the plants understand they have an obligation to teach us. And then you watch people who are sure that plants can't be intelligent get frightened of these shamans and think these guys have been taking too many plants. 
So we're at a funny place where the question is, who's going to be most interested in saving the planet since we're not doing a very good job? And the answer is clearly the plants. And so suddenly out of South America comes all these plants that have been used for thousands of years very quietly. And they keep saying ayahuasca being the best known, which is actually two plants. And it keeps saying, we're here to help you. We're here to make you healthier so that you will want to save not only the planet, but the plants. And that, to me, is the kind of next whole era of exploration. Very good. All right, Dr. James Fetterman, thank you so much for coming. The book is The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's been a great pleasure. Next, my interview with Sage Marie Spayeth, one of last year's five golden ticket winners from Roll Dahl's Imaginormous Challenge, which seeks out imaginative story ideas from imaginative and creative kids ages 5 through 12 from across the country. Hi, Sage. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I understand that you were one of five lucky golden ticket winners from the Roald Dahl Imaginormous Challenge last year. That's correct. Can you tell us about what the Roald Dahl Imaginormous Challenge is? Well, the thing that you have to do is to come up with the most imaginative story idea, 100 words or less, and it would be ages 5 through 12 to enter. Okay. And how did you find out about this challenge? Um, my mom saw it on the internet, and she was like, oh, this is interesting. And then she looked into it, and it was like, 
she thought that it was just one of those contests that nobody ever wins. Like, oh, uh, what the heck will enter? Nobody ever wins these things. And I actually won it. That's pretty amazing. Had you read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Actually, yes. When I found out that I won the story, I went to read it immediately. How did you feel that you personally related to the kids in the story? I liked Charlie because I was so excited. I thought it was so unlikely, and it really was, and it was just such a pleasurable moment. Uh-huh. What was your winning story idea? My winning story idea was a place called Sage World, and it's a planet far away in a different solar system, and everybody there looks exactly identical to me, and they each have their own special talents. And when I can't do something, they swap into my body and do it for me. For example, if I were to get invited to a party at a roller skating rink and I didn't know how to roller skate, the stage that was really good at roller skating would swap into my body and roller skate for me. And when she was done, I would swap back into her body and she would go back to stage world. So was, was this something that you had to ask one of your altar sages to come and help you or did they just automatically show up when you needed them? They always, like, have, like, a monitor for me, except when I'm using the bathroom to see what I'm doing in case I need some help. And there's, like, a special area where they meet up and they give each other a pep talk before they have to go to Earth. Uh-huh. So they're looking out for you all the time. Yes. Wow. That's a wonderful idea. I love that. Thank you. Can you give me some other examples of alternate sages that have come to help you? Um, yes, sometimes, but not usually when I want her. Like, she shows up sometimes. Um, there's this sage named Polly, and she's really good at cleaning, and she has an English accent. I imagine that comes in handy a lot, like when your parents come into your room and ask you to clean up your room. Yeah, but she usually doesn't show up, and I have to do it myself, and I usually don't enjoy it. Really? <laughs> Why doesn't she show up? I don't know. She just doesn't. Maybe she's on vacation. Oh, so sometimes they take vacations? Um, yes, but it's usually just Polly. Uh-huh. So what inspired the idea of Sage World for you? Well, when I was younger, about four or five, I had this anxiety and this frustration that, uh, like, the anxiety made me miss out on things, and the frustration, like, I got frustrated over little things very, very easily, and the Sage World idea helped me to overcome that anxiety and overcome that fear and made me a much stronger person, and it made me feel more confident in my life. So, did you come up with that idea all by yourself? Yes. Wow. That is really, really impressive. That's such a brilliant idea and way to cope with the world. Thank you. How did you find out that you were one of the lucky five winners? Um, one of the people running the contest sent my mom an email, 
and she showed it to me, and I was bouncing off the walls, literally. <laughs> I bet. I understand that there's five different prizes, and I'd love to hear what all the different prizes are, and then I would love to hear what you got to win. Well, I got to fly to Hollywood and stay in a fancy hotel. I got a VIP tour of Warner Brothers Studios, and best of all, I met with Warner Brothers animation executives and pitched my story idea to them to get into a movie. And there was also this nice man named Spike Baird who turned my idea into a concept art for a movie. Wow. So there's a movie coming out that's based on Sage World? No, they passed, but now I have the freedom to actually play around with it myself and actually express it with my own feelings and thoughts. And I'm thinking about turning it into a book or like a graphic novel or something. That sounds wonderful. Thank you. Has being one of the five lucky winners and going to Hollywood changed you or the way you see your life in the future? Yes. Like, it has made me feel so amazing. Like, I didn't know I had this amount of creativity. I knew I was pretty creative, but I didn't know that people thought I was this creative. And it made me feel so good. And I kept that feeling with me for the rest of my life since then. So based on this, do you know what you would like to do when you get older? Actually, yes. I want to be a children's book author and illustrator, or as I like to call it, an orchestrator. Huh. I've never heard that. You are very creative and inventive. Thank you. That's really wonderful. I think you're going to do really well in this world. I appreciate your creativity and your ideas. Thank you so much. And I think imagination is incredibly valuable. I think it's very underrated and that people don't value it as much as it deserves to be. I agree. That's, that's why I try to be so creative and I try and stand out from the crowd. So getting back to this Imaginormous Challenge, I would love for you to describe it in greater detail and what future entrants or future winners can gain from entering. Well, one of the winners can fly to Hollywood like I did, except you get to go with the Warner Brothers consumer product team and they can help you turn your idea into a toy. And you can also go with the Charlie and the Chocolate Factory tour team to make your story into a theatrical creation. You can also fly to Seattle and they'll help you make your story into a Minecraft world. You can fly to Los Angeles and meet with Henry Winkler and He'll help you turn your story into a short ebook. And last but not least, you can fly to New York to Dylan's Candy Bar, and they'll help you turn your story into a scrum diddly masterpiece. Sounds like a lot of fun. Yes. So I also hear that you got to meet Roald Dahl's daughter? Granddaughter, but yeah. Granddaughter, uh-huh. What was that like? It was really exciting. It was... Like, to meet someone that was related to one of my favorite authors, it was great. And did you learn anything about Roald Dahl from her? Not that much, but I also got to 
go to the World Doll Museum and go to the archives, and I got to see this red plastic box. And that was actually the same box that they passed around after dinner in World Doll's household, and it was filled with chocolate. And I actually got to eat one from it. But it wasn't that old. It was, it was like, new put into it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so... They had a tradition of passing around a red box full of chocolates. A red plastic box, yes. Huh. That's interesting. Have you incorporated that idea or any similar kind of idea into your family life? No, not really. Not yet. Not yet? Are you considering that or thinking about possibilities like that? Possibly. Uh Uh-huh. Well... I think this is really fascinating. I I love your winning story idea. Thank you. So all anyone needs to do to enter is to write an imaginative story idea in 100 words or less. Is that correct? Yes, you can be ages 5 through 12 to enter. And anybody who has an interesting idea that is within the age limits can enter. And even if you have more than one great idea you can enter more than one but if you do one you will just get credit on one of the stories okay so the more ideas you have the better yes but the way i see it the most creative stories you have will help you like quality matters more than quantity oh yes of course and congratulations on winning i'm so happy for you that you had the best idea last year thank you And I wish you all the best of luck in your life. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for talking with me about it. Thanks for having me. It's been fun to talk with you. The pleasure's all mine. Hmm. Well, thank you very much again, and the very best of luck to you. Thank you so much. Be well, and bye-bye. Bye. And that was Sage... Marie Spaeth. She was one of last year's five lucky golden ticket winners from Roll Dahl's Imaginormous Challenge. And you can be a winner if you're between the ages of five and 12, or if you have a child in your family or know of a particularly imaginative or creative child. All they need to do is write their story idea in 100 words or less to enter by going to www.imaginormouschallenge.com to find out more. And Imaginormous is spelled I-M-A-G-I-N-O-R-M-O-U-S challenge.com www.imaginormouschallenge.com All it takes is a hundred words or less. The Imaginormous Challenge is an imagination contest which asks kids not to imagine small, but to imaginormous. The idea is that every year Willy Wonka embarks on a search for inventive, imaginative story ideas from smart, imaginative, and creative kids from across the country. 
and five new golden ticket winners must be found and will be rewarded beyond their wildest imaginations, as Sage described. And maybe you will be one of the next five lucky golden ticket winners. All you have to do is enter by May 1st. That's less than two weeks away. So good luck to all of you and imagine Normous. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the Necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. Wherever I wander, wherever I roam, I couldn't be found of my big home. The bees are buzzing in the tree to make some honey just for me. When you look under the rocks and plants and take a glance at the fancy ants, then maybe try a few. The bare necessities of life will come to you, they'll come to you. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week. That's why a bear can rest at ease with just the bare necessities of life. Now when you pick a pawpaw or a prickly pear, and you prick a raw paw, well, next time, beware. Don't pick the prickly pear by the paw. When you pick a pear, try to use the claw. But you don't need to use the claw when you pick a pair of the big paw paw. Have I given you a clue? 